0: Hello and welcome to Hearts Weekly. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. We are recording on an official day of resistance declared by the protest movement against the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul here in Israel. Much of the country is shut down today as mass demonstrations close down the country's major highways and protesters target Ben-Gurion Airport at the height of tourist season. We'll talk about the crisis and the reason it's happening now with Haaretz Editor-in-Chief Esther Solomon. Also joining us is Anat Peled a writer here at Haaretz, to talk about the case of Elizabeth Tsirkoff, an Israeli Middle East expert who's being held captive in Iraq by a militia backed by Iran. Esther, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: As we record, the country is basically shut down with these protests. As I drove in today, it took me twice as long as usual. A lot of people just aren't going into work today to go out and protest. Some companies, even small ones, are letting people have the day off without pay in order to make themselves heard about this judicial overhaul. Key intersections are being blocked. Mounted police and water cannons are working full-time to clear them off. We're seeing arrests in much higher numbers than over the past months. This intensified protest movement is all because a piece of legislation has passed its first reading. It did so late last night. And a law eliminating what is known as the reasonableness standard. So before we go into the weeds on this legislation and what it means Esther, let's step out for a minute and look at the big picture. Why is the passage of the first reading of this law such a big deal?
1: Well, I think we need to go back and see the dynamic of the Netanyahu government's legislative overhaul, which is the name uh, that is commonly given for their quite a wide ranging program to enfeeble Israel's judiciary and change the nature of the democratic uh, system here. It all began, obviously, with the uh, inauguration of the Netanyahu government, which won the elections at the end of last year. But it was Netanyahu's justice minister who uh, gave a big speech in January and announced this enormous, very wide-ranging effort to rethink the basis of independence of the judiciary, in other words, to uh, neuter the independence of the judiciary, and many bills that came together to attack various aspects of how uh, Israel is governed and how the powers of governance are overseen by the judiciary. So what happened was that various parts of this legislative effort were pushed through the Knesset in their initial stages and At the same time, an enormous mass protest movement was born in Israel, something that Israel's never seen before. The most sustained grassroots effort of uh, civil uh, protest that has now lasted more than six months and absolutely in the most sustained way every single week, Uh, 27 weeks we're up to now. And it was not just a matter of protests on Saturday nights at key intersections in Across Israel, there was an enormous protest by army reservists, which got to the point that it threatened uh, some of Israel's key units, part of their abilities to actually function. It hit the high-tech sector. It hit the economy in all sorts of different ways. The social workers went out on strike. The main uh, labor union also declared a strike, a short-lived strike. It got to the point that... Uh, Israel was seemed to be wobbling on the precipice somewhat. And then there was also Netanyahu's decision to fire the defence minister, who had basically stood back and said, listen, this is actually becoming a national security issue here. That moment was a moment of enormous wave of protest that evening. In Tel Aviv and across the country, hundreds of thousands of people came out that evening. And then uh, it actually caused Netanyahu to take a pause. Uh, he announced that he was going to shelve the legislation and then there would be, and Israel's president stepped in and said, We're going to have a dialogue, a national dialogue, uh, representatives from all the major political parties, and we're going to try and talk this through. We're going to try and Find some way of compromise. Now, there obviously there were skeptics right from the beginning who said, "What kind of compromise can you come to with people who are determined to uh, neuter democracy and uh, democratic institutions and the capacity of the judiciary to oversee?" But the desire, at least, uh, to try and get somewhere. Uh, to find some kind of common ground or at least to enjoy the pause of between the very, very high pressure of the protests won over. And so those talks went on for some time.
0: Yeah there was just an atmosphere in the country of there's so much tension so much conflict everyone was looking hoping against hope for these negotiations to bring something that could uh, end this confrontation but now we seem to have returned to a period of high tension high confrontation so what has changed
1: since the uh, since the negotiations started Well, the doomsayers were saying, you know, the protest movement had got to its highest peak then, and it was going to basically disintegrate then because you can't keep up momentum for such a long time. So indeed, there was a lowering of the flames. The Netanyahu government promised that it would put all of its plans on hold. But then last night, they came back again. Part of this legislative uh, effort was passed in its first reading. Uh, In the meantime, uh, the opposition had already pulled out of these dialogue talks. And so that has basically been the trigger for the protests to reassemble and in full power and, uh, and as noisily as it was before.
0: So there's a perception that the government tried to pass all of this legislation, which would transform the Israeli legal and political system in one big package. So it didn't work. Instead, you know, what's known locally as the salami method. You're going to cut it slice by slice. It's not just known
1: locally. That is how it is understood in countries like Hungary and Poland. That's exactly also how it was achieved, that kind of deterioration of... Uh, democratic uh, life.
0: So if they're doling it out slice by slice, this law, which passed its first reading last night, is being perceived as the first cut into the salami. And so we're... It's not only being looked at as this single law in a, in a microcosm, but as the first step as to passing the entire judicial revolution, judicial overhaul in several pieces, which is why the reaction is so great today.
1: Sure, and if you speak to the most ideologically committed ministers in the Netanyahu government, that's what they say quite openly. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they basically made a demand of Netanyahu, you must pass something before the Knesset goes on its summer break. But really, it's not just, uh, they're not going to be satisfied with one part or a bone that they've been thrown. They want the whole uh, They want the whole uh, deal. Uh, and the, and protest- the subtext is, or else, or else we may pull out of your coalition and you won't have a government,
0: which is maybe an empty threat, but it's a threat.
1: It's enough pressure that Netanyahu knows that he has to. He's constantly been on a journey to try and appease the most extreme members of his government ever since he set it up. He set it up. You know, a government that has never been uh, the most extreme, the most theocratic, the most ideologically pro-settler government that Israel has ever seen. And constantly, as what happens if you sit down with the far right and parties like that, you end up either being pulled towards where they are, or they're in their nature provocateurs and troublemakers and extremists, and that all the time they're going to be pushing you to do more and more and more. And he... Uh, has given them various bones along the way. Uh, but that's a constant, uh, you know, that's a constant pressure on him, whether or not they would really want to leave the government or something else, but they can make that threat anytime they like. On the other hand, Netanyahu has this at uh, more than half the country, probably by most polls, including a substantial number of people who even voted Likud last time, according to the most recent polls, who fundamentally disagree with the government pushing forward on this an extremely controversial program, and in fact, support the protest movement.
0: So, the law that we're looking at this week, the reasonableness standard, or the elimination of the reasonableness standard. In a different world, we would have the lawyers and politicians who care about this stuff, this, this legal jargon, arguing whether we need a reasonableness standard or if it's something we could do without. And it's actually, there's a reason why it's the first one they're passing because it's kind of the, the least hotly argued aspect. So let's discuss what a reasonableness standard is and the argument over whether or
1: not it needs to be included in, uh, in Israeli law. Well, I'll give. I'll I'll start the conversation off. Uh, it's, it's it's an idea that there are criteria by which government decisions and appointments can be made that are not strictly about whether they are legal or illegal. There is another uh, normative uh, way of looking at government decisions that assesses whether they are, for instance, corrupt or if they are extremist or if it's clear that completely uh, factors that are not uh, in the public interest have been used to make those uh, decisions. So, for instance, if you make wild uh, governmental ministry appointments of people who are entirely unqualified or have criminal records or have well-known extremist backgrounds that perhaps threaten the, pu- the public interest if they're given that... Uh, access to power, then there is a way of appealing to the courts to, to look over those kinds of appointments. And that's exactly what the government wants to cancel the court's ability to review those kinds of appointments. And just to give some idea about what this really is about, the second that this law, if it is passed in its all three readings and becomes law, then clearly one thing the government would be interested in is firing the Attorney General, who is one of the kind of ballasts of uh, the rule of law uh, against this very, very uh, extremist government. You know, there are questions about whether they could appoint somebody else to be head of the Elections Commission, with all sorts of quite frightening repercussions about what that would mean about the integrity of elections in Israel. And it goes on and on. And also to appoint the Minister of Interior and the Minister of Health that
0: Netanyahu tried to appoint the head of the Shas party, Aryeh Derry, who, you know, his case is one of the most frequently cited examples of the use of the reasonableness standard, because in the past, he was not allowed to be a senior minister because he's been convicted twice of uh, corruption and in jail, and, yes. and, and served time in jail. So there are people who don't trust the judiciary as much who say, hey, you shouldn't be able to have this thing where the judges say this violates the law so you can't do it this is just giving the power to the judges to say hey we i don't think this is reasonable so you can't do it the people who don't trust the politicians say you know you need some sort of check on this crazy stuff and you don't have to sit and wait for somebody to be charged and convicted of corruption and so the high court is the balance in not allowing politicians to do what they want to do so again in another world you would be arguing this on its merits Um, pro or con. But in our particular situation, it's seen as the first step towards the government getting to override Supreme Court uh, decisions and the government getting to choose who's on the judiciary. And that's why we've got people in the streets over this law.
1: Right. Obviously, if there was any sense uh, that the government was actually acting in good faith and wanted to have a serious cross-society national dialogue about what Uh, aspects of this law work and which could be amended according to some kind of consensus that it reaches amongst experts, then that's something completely different. But there's absolutely no way that you can understand the way that the government is pushing forward its legislative program in that way. Not from the beginning when they, you know, made these grand claims about exactly what a different kind of Israel that they wanted this legislation to basically create. So, and also... The other thing is that uh, what kind of dialogue can you possibly have with people who are basically holding you hostage at the same time? You know, it's basically saying, let's have a nice discussion, but at any point I can pull back and and just run to the Knesset and that's it. And In fact, even with this particular bill, you know, it will only take another 24 or 48 hours, they could pass the whole thing in its entirety. So the idea that there's the protest movement that is stopping some kind of Reasonable debate about this, I think, is really quite mistaken.
0: So huge protests today. And part of it, part of the whole controversy and part of the whole atmosphere is conversations on how tough the police should be when it comes to the protest movement, when it comes to shutting down major highways, trying to shut down the airport. And that was the topic of the cabinet meeting on Sunday when the attorney general, which we just mentioned that much of the government would like to fire, kind of became a target at this meeting for the ministers and some very harsh rhetoric and, and attacks. Anat, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. You've been to many of the protests in both Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and you also covered the Balfour movement against Netanyahu in 2020. What are they like generally in terms of the measures that the police take against the protesters? Have they been treated leniently as the government states or, you know, cracked down too tough as many of the protesters complain?
2: So I think it depends. I think we're not seeing the same level of um, police force that's used against, let's say, Palestinians or other minorities. Uh, But we're still seeing... We're seeing a change. I think in the beginning of the protests, first of all, you can see a difference in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Just because Jerusalem is more heated, um, you tend to see a little bit more escalation there. I think it was very—the police was okay in the beginning in Tel Aviv. I think now we're starting to see an uptick in— use of water cannons. We saw someone being hit at, in his eye, which is illegal. So we're seeing an uptick. Uh, this could be kind of uh, pressure from Ben-Vir. Uh We don't Ben-Vir, really
0: know. the uh, the national security yes. uh, minister. Lamar
2: yeah, exactly. And so I think we, we might be starting to see a change. We'll see where it goes.
1: And this has become a political issue, right, Esther? Absolutely. I mean, you're, you should speak about this as much as (laughs) more than any of us. You just wrote an excellent piece all about uh, understanding the claim by Israel's right wing that the police is being coddling the protest movement and not treating them with the force that they both accuse the police of using against other kinds of protesters, but also essentially they want uh, the police to crack down in, uh, in a much harsher way against the protest movement. You know, full stop. That's that's basically their aim. There is, you know, significant pressure on the police itself, which has been uh, now uh, is in a somewhat divided position. The Tel Aviv police chief, whom, as Anat says, was very made extreme efforts, although some protesters would say not enough. To make sure that the number of, literally the number of injured protesters would be as low as possible Mm -hmm. by being, giving more leeway to protesters, especially at certain moments of high tension, to protest without kettling them, without uh, using uh, aggressive police tactics against them. Uh, Now, obviously, that became a cause celebre of itself and the police, the police chief resigned. Uh, last week and gave extremely impressive uh resignation speech where he said he has been under extreme political pressure to use more force against protesters that is basically what he said and uh, indeed just from this morning more than you know nearly 60 people have been arrested across Israel so far and there already are injured people being ferried off to Tel Aviv hospitals. So uh, when you have mounted police and you have water cannon and you have Israel's hottest day of the year so <laughs> far as well, and very very high uh, political tensions and a police force that knows that its boss, who is you know Itamar Ben Gvir, you know a far right extremist of his own, Who's well, his- well known to the police from the other yeah. side of the dock, put it that way. Uh, you know, this is a very, very combustible situation indeed. Well, we
0: can't finish this conversation without mentioning uh, remarks uh, reported today by our diaspora minister, Amichai Chikli, who had something to say b- about the relationship between the protest movement and the Biden administration. Right, Esther?
1: Yes, he accused the Biden administration of basically orchestrating Israel's (laughs) protest movement. Because they've got nothing better to do. Yeah, um, I roll my eyes, which is something that you can't actually see if you're listening to this (laughs) as a podcast. But uh, Amichai Chikli, yeah, he's quite the character. And uh, I suppose I shouldn't complain that he's provided us uh, with so much uh, to cover over the last few months. But... You know, if we actually had good governance, I could do without that, to be honest. But, you know, the the one person who is supposed to be building ties of uh, empathy and understanding with diaspora Jews constantly takes it on himself to insult and abuse them. And, and you know, in the most grotesquely uh, blatant ways, he says that the protest movement here uh, and by association, those in... Diaspora who support them are worse than BDS. He says that George Soros funds them all, which feeds into, you know, the very uh, well known right wing conspiracy theory around the world. He is very, very good friends with uh, far right parties. Uh, across uh, Europe, especially in Canada. So um, he was in New York at the parade. He offered Uh, a lovely (laughs) physical gesture towards the protests involving his middle finger. Exactly. So this is, you know, someone who is perhaps one of the most bizarrely appointed uh, ministers in this very, very strange government. Uh, And yes, so today he's turned the anger on to Biden, saying that Biden and, you know, by extension, liberal Jews in America and anyone in the White House basically wants to see the the downfall of the Netanyahu government, or at least uh, they're trying to stir things up here.
0: Well, he's definitely influencing uh, relations with the diaspora, though not necessarily in the direction that one would imagine his office is designated to do.
1: Yeah, I mean this is a constant uh, refrain it's basically a conspiracy theory of its own that the Biden White House is in some ways you know behind a lot of the things that are not going right for the Netanyahu government.
2: This is a really classic thing from the authoritarian playbook when you accuse an outside force of supporting um, you know, uh, protests in your country. We saw this in Syria under Assad. I spoke to an activist in um, Sudan yesterday. This is classic.
1: Putin, it sounds very Putin-esque, right? And very often, by the way, that outside force or outside force plus fifth column are usually often Jews, and that's often that's the basis of the most age-old uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and it's just particularly I'm not sure exactly what the word, uh, pertinent, interesting, sad, depressing, that uh, an Israeli uh, Jewish government minister is doing that now.
0: Well, speaking of Putin and the wider Middle East, Anat, I brought you here to talk about the case of Elizabeth Tzerkov, the Russian-Israeli academic researcher who is kidnapped in Iraq. Um, about whom you wrote a great piece, which is up right now on haaretz.com. First of all, Anat, who is Elizabeth Tsirkov?
2: So, uh, Elizabeth Tsirkov is a 36-year-old PhD candidate at Princeton. She studies uh, the region, basically, of Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, and she looks at um, populations that have been basically have gone through civil war and sectarianism. And what's interesting about her is her approach is she does a lot of field work. She's over the years she's basically gotten all these contacts in these countries, and she's very well known for going on the ground, talking to these people, and bringing exclusive kind of um, knowledge and these perspectives from the ground that are very well admired by her colleagues, even if they don't agree with her. Uh, which they told me when I interviewed them. Uh, her background's interesting as well. So her parents are intellect were intellectual dissidents in the Soviet Union. And they sat in prison, actually. And then um, they moved to Israel when Elizabeth was young. And yeah, and Elizabeth became an outspoken critic of the Israeli government as well. And she fights for human rights for Palestinians, but she's really well known as like a Syria expert, I would say that's her main
0: uh, reputation. And she's especially well known on social media. Her Twitter account has many, many followers. So even people who may not have known her, may not have read her, know about her through her uh, her social media reach. So what exactly was she doing in Iraq when she was kidnapped?
2: So she was conducting uh, field work, which is basically work for her, her PhD, where she was talking to people, conducting interviews. Um, she had, according to reports, she had been in Iraq already 10 times before. So she knew the field. She had uh, extensive contacts. She was meeting with, you know, dangerous people, I suppose. Um, you know, she, she once conducted a famous interview in the past with the head of the army of Islam, Jashil Islam in Syria. Uh, so she really had access to these, these interesting people. And so she was, she was doing work for her PhD. And apparently she, she was kidnapped in uh, Baghdad. And it's she's been held for several months, but it's only come out now publicly.
0: And that your piece deals with academic research and dangerous countries as a phenomenon. Officially, Iraq is an enemy country to Israel. If you are an Israeli in Iraq, you are taking a big risk by spending time there. How many Israeli researchers travel to what are officially enemy countries to conduct their research? Is this an unusual thing that she was doing?
2: It's uh, unusual, but it exists. It's far more popular among businessmen and journalists in Israel. We know very well this journalist called Itai Engel, who goes and does this uh, kind of badass, I would say, um, interviews in like the Congo and, and Syria. Um, in the academic community, it's a bit more unusual, and it's even more unusual in the Middle Eastern expert community in Israel. So l- I'll give you an example. You know, there are so many experts on Iran mm-hmm. in Israel, but very few have been in Iran. And right, and the country changes over time.
0: I mean, in journalism, these intrepid reporters, right? Like Itai Engel, they've got pulling on the other side of it's dangerous. You know, the public has to know; they have to report what's going on, and therefore taking that risks. But in academia, it's harder to find a compelling argument why you must go to this dangerous place or this place where something can happen to you, like getting kidnapped to conduct the research. Is there like an argument, justifications for doing it? Yeah. So technically, you could do this research remotely,
2: right? You could follow telegram groups of jihadists. Uh, There's a lot more kind of technological solutions that you could use now. And actually, I was told that Elizabeth during COVID was doing her interviews over Zoom. But what came across with a bunch of different academics I interviewed is that there's really no replacement for talking to the people on the ground, to having a discussion in their environment. Um, That's very hard to replace. And, you know, I understand there are serious risks, very real risks, um, but people really were excited to read what she had to say because it was really engaged in the field. So there's a lot of respect for that. I did speak to one woman who had been a target, she says, of uh, Iranian efforts over the years to lure her to academic conferences abroad. And she actually just stopped traveling abroad. She got so freaked out.
0: So it it is a real danger. Um, And did you hear other stories about uh, Israeli researchers or, you know, international researchers, you know, facing danger when they tried to conduct their research abroad?
2: Yeah. So one of the most interesting things is that it's not just an Israeli nationality that can get you in trouble. Lebanon, for example, does not let people in who have traveled to Israel. So if you have a stamp in your passport or something like that, you will be refused. So I spoke to one researcher from a UK Institute of Higher Education with an East Asian nationality. This is all to protect his, his identity. He went to Lebanon and he actually got detained by Hezbollah, Uh, and unfortunately, during the detention, they looked through his phone, and he described sitting in this prayer room, and these two guys are facing him looking through his phone, and then the guy kind of smiles, one of the Hezbollah guys, and he says, what's plus 972? Hmm. And that's the area code for Israel, and he told me that was the moment. I wasn't so worried until then. I just fell. I was so freaked out. I thought that was it. And for some reason, he really just had come here to Israel for uh, short academic purposes. But luckily, he got, you know, he was handed over to the Lebanese security forces, detained for 60 nights, but let go. He currently plans to continue the rest of his
0: Ph.D. research remotely, although he did tell me he wants
2: to go back in the future.
0: (laughs) So there's all kinds of discussions now getting her back. Who to negotiate with? You know who the intermediaries are. There's talk about um, uh, Russia. I think even you know playing intermediary role, changing her for uh, for exchanging her for possible terror uh, suspects being held in Israel. Um, Is there controversy over the price that Israel should be willing to pay to get somebody back who knowingly took these risks? I think there is controversy, but I think that,
2: um, you know, we. Sh- I think as a, as a state, you know, Israel should worry about its citizens who are in these situations and, and work as hard as it can to, to get her back. There are several kind of entities in, like that could be involved, and I think are, you know, she had a Russian nationality, she has Russian nationality, so perhaps Russia's involved. Um, she had an association to an American institution. Um, and there's Israel. so there's all these moving parts. I know that people who I spoke to knew for a long time before it became public that she was being held and they the family really wanted not to talk about it so that maybe she could be let out without you know quietly. The fact that it came to the press means that maybe it's not going so well. I don't know, but I do hope that the Israeli government will do everything it can to to let her go.
0: Esther, what do you have to say about the political discussion as to, how aggressively Israel should work and how much it should be willing to give up in order to get Elizabeth Cherkov back.
1: Well, I I 100% agree with Anat that every country has an absolutely fundamental uh, responsibility towards every one of its citizens. And you certainly can't uh, start picking and choosing on the basis of their political beliefs, uh, whether, you know, that's kind of a, a more Uh, Valuable citizen, all that one. So, uh, you know, again, I hope that Israel is doing everything it can. I mean, I have to say it is a little bit disillusioning to read some of the commentary online about uh, Elizabeth's uh, abduction and uh, whether it's from people who have a knee-jerk hostility towards anyone who has Israeli nationality itself, uh, those who seem to think that she must be some kind of uh, Mossad spy, uh, mostly because of her nationality as well, uh, and those also on the Israeli uh, right who say, you know, she was anti-occupation, therefore we shouldn't bother. All of those points of views, it's like a perfect storm of awfulness.
0: Yep. And it's interesting. There are some Palestinian organizations who are trying to use whatever influence they have um, because they feel that she's been sympathetic to uh, to try to get her out. So we'll see how that unfolds. Hopefully it will have a happy ending. Esther, Anat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Alison. Thanks for having us. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Esther Solomon and Anat Peled, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.